Welcome back to One Conversation, where one conversation can change a life. My name is JC Macias, and here with me, my lovely co-hosts, Miguel and Lisa. And so if you are not yet subscribed or following our podcast, go ahead and follow or subscribe so you will be updated with all our new episodes when they are released. So for today's episode, before we get started, just to let you know, April is both Sexual Assault and Child Abuse Awareness Month. So today we are going to discuss how we recognize and define child abuse. With that being said, please be advised that this episode may be triggering for some as we are going to discuss child abuse. So please take care of yourself however you have to, to kind of get through this episode. So to start, we will say that this is a very serious issue that is unfortunately common. According to the CDC, from a 2021 report, at least one in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the past year. So think about that. One in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in just this past year. Although that is likely an underestimate because so many cases go unreported, Mm -hmm. right? That's something that we know with the work that we do. In 2020, it's reported that 1,750 children passed away due to abuse and neglect. That's why, although this is such a hard topic to discuss and have a conversation on, it is super important that we have this conversation to really educate the public and to shine some light on this issue. Absolutely. And before we go ahead and and break down, you know, the different types of abuse that can occur, I'll say that child abuse here in the U.S., uh, it's actually defined both by federal and state laws. So depending on what state you live in, there might be some differences with how child abuse is defined um, and how that crime is really looked at and processed. But federally, under the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, child abuse is defined as any recent act or failure to act on the part of a parent or caregiver that results in death, serious physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or an act or failure to act that presents an imminent risk of serious harm. So there are so many actions, right, or failures to act that can fit under the umbrella of child abuse. So we're gonna cover how child abuse is defined in California as our agency Live Violence Free is located in California, But we'll be linking below some federal resources that speak to how abuse is defined differently across the country, as well as some international definitions as well. Yeah, I think it's important that we go over how it's defined here in California, just to get a better scope of what we're going to be talking about. Um, But we're going to start with physical abuse and how the laws define it in California. Physical abuse is defined as any bodily injury inflicted by non-accidental means on a child, including willfully willful cruelty, unjustifiable punishment, or corporal punishment. Some examples of what this could be are hitting or slapping a child that leaves a mark, punching, burning, kicking, using a weapon or a belt. It's important to note that often abusers may harm the child in places that are easy to conceal the marks that are left behind, such as the child's back, bottom Mm -hmm. of the feet, upper, upper legs on the scalp area that is covered by hair, any place where the marks can, can't be easily visible. So I think it's important that we talk about how the way that physical abuse and how it looks like in, in children can look different and how it's not just a one 
like we talked about how you know um the corporal punishment using weapons or using a bell you know there's different types so i think it's important to kind of really think outside of the box of the normal the norm that we see like on social media or what we think um physical child abuse looks like yeah and i think when it comes to physical abuse it's usually the one that first comes to mind right when mm-hmm. we think about and discuss child abuse where it's like what falls under that umbrella and i think most adults think about that physical abuse component but i think it'll be interesting for our listeners to hear all the other different forms of child abuse right yeah absolutely um and i think that's also common just in adult violence as well right like in any kind of intimate partner violence also you know physical abuse i think is really examined and really accepted and understood um you know especially if you can see those physical marks i'm happy that miguel pointed out the distinction that, you know, a lot of the times, especially with child abuse, you know, perpetrators might be really mindful about the ways in which they are harming that child, making sure it is in areas of the body that, you know, maybe their teacher, their coach, um, anyone in their life, right, other family members might not see. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. But uh, regardless of how, you know, um, terrible physical abuse is, there's also so many other things to consider, right? And these other forms of abuse are just as important. And so the next one we're going to talk about that is extremely impactful is emotional abuse. And this is so important to look at because, you know, although there may not be those physical marks, emotional abuse can leave long lasting emotional scars, right? That can have an effect throughout the lifespan, uh, maybe impacting that child's sense of self, their future relationships, uh, an ability to function in a, in a healthy manner, whether that's at home, work, or at school. And so when we're defining emotional abuse, it is willfully causing a child to suffer, inflicting mental suffering, or endangering a child's emotional well-being. And again, just kind of like for physical, there's a lot, right, that can fall under that umbrella. But for instance, some examples can include, um, you know, maybe a child's wetting the bed, right? And their parent is punishing them um, by shaming or belittling that child. Maybe, you know, making them stay in those soiled pajamas. Maybe, you know, name calling them when those kinds of things happen. So belittling, shaming, humiliating. Maybe you're telling this child that they are worthless, that they're a mistake. Perhaps there's frequent yelling or threatening to the child, or even limiting contact or rejecting a child as punishment. So kind of giving them that that silent treatment, right? Or maybe denying any hugs or signs of affection. And the last example we'll share out, of course, these are not all the things that can go into this, but maybe exposing a child to violence against others. So maybe, you know, violence towards the other parent or caregiver, maybe violence towards another sibling or even a pet, right? And thinking about how much of an impact that's going to have on a child. Um, Just being a witness to that, you know, not feeling like they have options, not feeling like maybe they can do anything to help, and also just kind of sitting in that fear, right, of having to experience and witness that. But just keeping all those things in mind, emotional abuse is really, really damaging um, to everyone, but especially for kids. Absolutely, I definitely agree. And that's something that we cover during our child abuse prevention curriculum. So it's always so interesting to see the different elements of that. So with that being said, the next type of child abuse is sexual abuse. We know that a child legally cannot consent to any form of sexual activity, right? If they're under the age of 18 in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And so an adult engaging in any type of sexual activity with 
or even just in the presence of a child knowingly is classified as child sex abuse. And so we are going to discuss this a little bit further, especially in regards to the presence of a child knowingly, because I think some of you may be asking, what does that necessarily mean? And so just know that we will Mm -hmm. highlight that. Um, But sexual abuse of children includes many types of sexual activities, not just in physical sexual contact between the perpetrator and the child. So some of those examples include exhibitionism or exposing oneself to a minor, fondling, inappropriate touching or viewing of private parts, pleasuring oneself in front of a child, obscene sexual conversations through any type of communication or media, including calls, texts, or social media, producing, owning, or sharing pornographic images or movies of children, It could be sexually exploiting or trafficking the child. And lastly, any sexual activities such as intercourse. And so when we talk about child sexual abuse, it's important to note that there doesn't have to be any form of penetration for it to be considered sexual abuse, right? Um, Like we just Mm -hmm. mentioned, it could be just any form of inappropriate touching or, you know, exposure to anything that's pornographic or any genital area. So when we discuss child sexual abuse as a part of our prevention classes at the elementary school, we are super careful about how we introduce and discuss this, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are definitely providing information that one, children can understand and two, that are age appropriate. And so when we're going into, you know, kinder and first grade classes, you know, we are very careful in the language that we're using. And so when we discuss these prevention classes, we definitely teach our kids about the bathing suit rule. So we ask them what they wear when we go swimming, right? Or when they go to the pool. And so it's important for them to kind of identify that they're wearing bathing suits. And we ask them what what the purpose is of wearing bathing suits, right? And it's to cover some of those private areas. And so after we identify those private areas, we say that no one besides the person who is supposed to keep them safe, and we'll talk about that in just a second, anyone else is not allowed to touch those areas, right? Those areas that their bathing suits cover. And so when we talk about, well, who are some of these people that are keeping you healthy or allowed to possibly either view or see those areas, then they identify a parent who's possibly helping them, right, in regards to keeping themselves clean or healthy or possibly a doctor or caregiver, right, if there's Mm -hmm. any care that needs to be provided. And so regardless if it's somebody's job, right, like a parent or a caregiver or a doctor to help them, in any way, uh, we do always let them know that if they are feeling uncomfortable with any form of viewing or touching, um, or if something does not feel right, to still talk to a trusting adult about it. And so discussing the bathing suit rule with kids is extremely important in regards to prevention. And it's important to do this at a very early age because we know statistically that 93% of victims under the age of 18 know the abuser, right? And so a lot of times they tend to think that, oh, it's probably a stranger or it's kind of a situation where someone's being kidnapped or just grabbed, right? Um, But no, most of the time and what's most common is the sexual abuse perpetrator is someone that the child or even adult knows, right? And so it's really important to talk to them about what a trusting adult also is and looks like and allow them to choose that. And so there are 
a variety of different ways that a person can manipulate the victims to engage in abuse and especially if it's children right it's they're more vulnerable to this mm -hmm. and so uh, at times they will be threatened or they will be manipulated to not reporting and so it's important for parents and adults to have these conversations in advance with children to let them know that if anyone ever touches them in a way that they feel uncomfortable or is inappropriate that it's never their fault and they need to talk to a trusting adult so they can get the proper help and support Absolutely. And I think that's that's unfortunately such a common element, right? Like someone maybe telling them that, you know, this is normal behavior. It's okay for me to do this. And, you know, especially if this is someone that is in their life. And again, statistically, we know that happens more often than not, right? This is someone that the child, the family uh, probably knows and maybe knows very well. And so this could be, you know, um, an older playmate, a sibling, another family member, a coach, a teacher caretaker I mean like the list really goes on right and so you know just setting that foundation with kids and like JC mentioned in that developmentally appropriate way right we're kind of gently introducing this and just giving them the knowledge that you know if this isn't your parent right uh, maybe helping you in and out of the tub or maybe you know they have a rash down there or close to any private areas that they're kind of just taking a look at right or a, a doctor doing an exam you know if, if it's anyone else that that really shouldn't be going on right and so that's so important um, because again you know that manipulation piece is going to be huge and if again, this is someone that they trust, they might really easily believe that, oh, this is normal behavior. It is okay if they're doing this. And so, yeah, really important. Um, and I'll tell you what, too, I mean, I've, I'm out of the teaching game now, and you guys, you know, are in the schools, and you're doing that work. But I remember always getting a lot of compliments from all the teachers, right, from those classes saying, you know, like I looked at the curriculum beforehand. And of course, you know, the curriculum's always sent out to parents of all the kids that are attending that class. Parents have the option to opt their children out of the class, right, if they don't want them to go through that. But I always got so much great feedback with the teachers that, you know, even though we're discussing some really difficult stuff, they were always so happy and so impressed in the ways that we brought those conversations up with those kids and made it comfortable and made it something empowering and, and normal to talk about. And so just wanted to mention that as well, right? Because I think maybe a lot of people hearing that and thinking like, oh my gosh, you talk to kids about that? Well, yeah, we do. We find a lot of different, again, appropriate ways to have those conversations. And it's so important to set that stage for them. So moving on in this list, um, the last form of abuse that we're going to talk about is neglect. And neglect is kind of interesting. So it's defined as a parent or caregiver failing to provide adequate care of the child. And this may include not providing food and water, uh, clothing or appropriate clothing, depending on the elements, providing shelter, medical care, or supervision to the degree that the child's health, safety, and well-being are threatened with harm. And so maybe the parents, you know, deny food on a regular basis. Maybe they're not taking the child to important medical appointments. Or maybe, you know, the child has some kind of medical issues and, and these parents or caregivers are just, you know, they're not really putting in any effort to get that child medical help. Uh, maybe they are sending the child out in freezing weather, you know, without that adequate clothing, right? Without a jacket that they have or with, you know, um, sandals on, but they're walking around in the snow. 
So even having unsafe items in the home, perhaps you know loaded weapons nearby or medications out in the open without supervising that child, that can also constitute neglect, right? And I think that's kind of easy to kind of picture, right? If we have a child in the home, they're not being watched, there's dangerous things that they can get into very easily and that's kind of carelessly um, you know, around them in their area, something that they could get their hands on, that absolutely could be constituted as neglect as well. Yeah, and I feel like I just, would just want to add the neglect is, I feel like it's the intent behind it, you know, like the, if they're not wanting to provide, mm-hmm. like they're able to provide food and medical attention, but the parent or the caregiver isn't wanting to do it intentionally. I feel like that's a huge, because we understand that there's families right. that go through a lot of, you know, maybe they, don't, they have food insecurities and aren't able to provide food for the child. So I just kind of want to throw that out there that it's... Yeah, yeah. And financial insecurity. I just kind of want to throw that out there that, that mm-hmm. with neglect, it's a lot, I feel like it's a lot about the intention behind um, not wanting to do something for the child. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and outside of those four types, there are um, some other considerations for abuse. These next two types are forms that are defined under law in a few states. Uh, first, prenatal substance abuse. This could look like prenatal exposure of a child to harm due to the mother's use of illegal drugs or substances while pregnant, uh, manufacturing a controlled substances in the presence of a child, um, allowing a child to be present while chemicals or equipment to manufacture controlled substances are used or stored, selling, distributing, or giving drugs or alcohol to child, and lastly, the use of a controlled substance by a caregiver that impairs their ability to inadequately care for the child. So again, I feel like just to kind of summarize, if a person is pregnant using drugs, you know, that's considered on those of abuse or harm to a child as well. And just being around, which I kind of go with the neglect, you know, just being around these harmful chemicals, um, it shows the neglect of the, mm-hmm. the parent, you know, and that isn't, that is putting these kids in harm's way. Right, absolutely. And we're going to link, again, a few things down below. There's an interesting article. It goes over all of the different states, all the different forms of child abuse that are listed within those states. And so this next consideration um, is called abandonment. So this is kind of our last type of abuse that does exist in some states out there in the U.S. as well. And so abandonment is considered when maybe the parent's identity or whereabouts are unknown, The child may have been left by the parent in circumstances where the child suffers serious harm, or when the parent has failed to maintain contact with the child or to provide reasonable support. And so I think both of those considerations, right? I think the prenatal substance abuse or exposing the child to drugs or abandonment, I think this makes a lot of sense, right? Especially after defining what constitutes not only neglect, but also emotional abuse, right? I mean, putting the child through these kinds of things where they're in really unpredictable circumstances, they don't even know where their parents are, their caregivers are, Um, they're not providing that support, they're in situations that are inherently dangerous, right? Exposing them to drugs. Um, It makes a lot of sense why some states would absolutely include these other considerations and so again there's going to be that child welfare link down below it'll it'll break down all the types of abuse in general and how it's defined state by state but now um, after we've kind of covered those types of abuse we're going to go ahead and switch gears and we're going to discuss some really important warning signs that a child might be experiencing abuse Of course, the list we're going to provide, it's not going to cover everything. It's going to really just touch on some of the most common indicators of abuse. So to start, uh, some of the physical signs 
might be, you know, a child looking unclean or lacking appropriate clothes for the weather. Maybe they have unexplained bruises, welts, sores, things that just don't seem to heal on their body or things that just continually pop up, right? And we know that kids, you know, sometimes they scrape their knees, right? They get into things, they're playing and, you know, kind of horsing around. But, you know, looking at maybe, again, if you could see kind of those other areas or just areas of their body where that stuff's kind of not as common, right? Um, and again, these things really aren't going away or it's kind of prolonged or they continually pop up. Maybe they have untreated medical or dental problems. And specifically for sexual abuse, perhaps this child is experiencing physical pain in their genital areas. If this is a um, young female, maybe any kind of vaginal bleeding, discharge, or unusual pain down there as well are some of the most common physical indicators of abuse. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I think those are some important physical signs to look out for. And so Lisa just mentioned some of those physical signs. We're going to shift gears and take a look at some of those emotional signs of abuse that could look or include fear of one or both parents or caregivers. And when we talk about caregivers, that's including babysitters, daycare workers, teachers, coaches, And so I think that's one of the most important signs to take a look at, right? If you see Mm -hmm. that a child reacts in a way where they are in fear, where they seem scared, where they seem very hesitant, and maybe this is a new reaction for them where they prior were not scared or in fear or hesitant to go with that person, right? That could be a sign. Um, Fear of an activity or place. If they're crying often in situations that seem inappropriate or unusual, right? Again, if they weren't crying before and and they've had the same routine and then all of a sudden they're crying and not wanting to go there. Um, Regression, which means returning to behaviors typical of a younger child, such as thumb sucking or bedwetting, all right? And I've... I've seen and have been involved in different child abuse kind of cases or incidents that have occurred. And bedwetting is one that have I have seen here and there that has happened. Um, and even in children that are a little bit older, right, where bedwetting could happen to someone that's potty training, right, um, or that may be still considered a toddler. And so there's been situations where you have a 9, 10, even 11-year-old that is bedwetting at night. And that's obviously very unusual and they never had that problem prior and could be seen as a sign that something has happened, right? And we've seen it. Uh, The last indicators when it comes to kind of um, behavioral signs now is it can include acting differently from other children, especially if it's a sudden change, possibly having frequent absences from school. Being withdrawn, you know, maybe they're a natural extrovert and then all of a sudden they're acting introverted or withdrawn or have a loss of interest of their usual activities. If they're bullying peers or younger children or possibly they're being bullied themselves. If they're having trouble learning or paying attention. And so when it comes to any form of abuse, it can impact someone differently, right? And sometimes when it comes to trauma, it could really affect, you know, your focus or, you know, your attention span. And so that could also be a sign. Avoiding physical contact with others, overachievement or being overly eager to please. Mm-hmm. And lastly, unusual sexualized behaviors or comments, especially ones that seem more mature or pornographic and inappropriate 
knowledge for their age. And so even with smaller children, if there has been any form of child sexual abuse at times, they may mimic that behavior. And so if you feel like your child or a child is acting very unusual and possibly acting in a way that is sexualized, right, in regards to their behavior, um, you know, that is a definitely warning and red flag. Yeah. And it's important for adults to know these warning signs and how to discuss child abuse with their children. Absolutely. And I think a lot of those things, right, especially, you know, the inappropriate um, sexualized language, behaviors, um, you know, and a lot of those behavioral things that you talked about, you know, them being withdrawn, suddenly avoidant of certain people or situations. I mean, these are all just really good indicators that regardless of what's actually occurring for that child or what's really going on, you know, pretty pertinent and important to hold a conversation with them about that, right? Because a lot of the times, I think especially with that over-sexualized language and behavior, you know, I think a parent can kind of sit back and say, like, well, where are you learning that from, right? Like, that's not something that children their age should really be um, knowledgeable of or talking about. You know, they may not or they probably haven't heard this from their peers at school, right? Or maybe they have, but regardless, you know, it's just a really good thing for a parent to kind of dial in and say, you know, I should really figure out where my child is learning these things or where maybe these fears, right? Or these all of a sudden, you know, drastic or different behaviors are coming in. And so before we talk about having these conversations with children, because, you know, it's, super important for us not just to go through and discuss what abuse is how we define it we obviously want to talk about those red flags right to make it easier for someone just to kind of screen for that right or have that in the back of their minds um but you know before we get into the back half here just going into those conversations and how to do that uh we'll mention that there's going to be a follow-up episode to this one we know we've already gone through a lot of really heavy information today but there's still so much to cover on this topic and so we're going to split it up a little bit we're going to do another episode to follow up in the near future just covering the effects of child abuse also in adulthood and some support options as well as other considerations so stay tuned for that But to round out this episode, let's discuss some tips for how adults can have these important conversations with kids to hopefully prevent abuse or just to provide support to a child who perhaps has already experienced abuse. And so our first tip, and this is kind of in terms of prevention, right? So just kind of starting these conversations with kids, empowering them with information, kind of like what we do at the school, right? You know, have conversations with kids, identifying first and foremost, I know JC mentioned this, trusted adults that they can talk to. Because we do this in our child abuse prevention classes. It's it's so important. We know that, you know, maybe a child's not always going to come directly to you. Or maybe the abuse and whatever is occurring is not happening, um, you know, with the parents around. This might be something really obviously scary for them to be experiencing, really confusing for them. So as much as, you know, all parents want their children to feel comfortable and safe coming to them to to talk about, you know, anything that's unsettling for them. It's so important to identify adults in other areas of their life, right? Just so they can have multiple adults they can talk to. And we're casting that wide net of support. Kids, you know, maybe feel more empowered or more safe when they not only know that their parents are looking out for them, but if you take the time with your child to recognize, you know, who are these other adults that are looking out for you and feel like they can go to and talk to them if something does occur. Because again, having that in their mind already, you know, 
know, it's not to scare our kids to say, you know, these bad things can happen and we have to kind of figure it out beforehand. But, you know, it's, it's empowering, right? Because God forbid, if something does occur, they already have in their mind kind of this little plan of, you know, I have all these different people I can go talk to and all these different people that care about me and support me if anything, you know, scary happens. And so, again, first and foremost, just identifying those supportive adults. And I think it's important that those, you know, those adults are, they can really make that change, you know, really impact a child's life. You know, it just takes that one person to speak up, right, in behalf of a child. So I think it's important, you know, to really want to be that person and teach our kids to look for these people before anything does happen. And our next tip is to encourage open discussion with kids and to talk to them about abuse and safety plan if something becomes abusive or scary and I feel like we safety plan with everybody and it's important to kind of know and have these this plan in place before anything does happen because when something does happen you know we don't tend to really you know think things through so it's important to kind of have this in place already so it kind of becomes like a muscle memory thing right like if something does happen I'm going to do this yeah maybe your child will go through a program like ours at their school where someone educates them in a developmentally appropriate way on abuse you can take these conversations home mm-hmm. and discuss it with them, too. Uh, if the child thinks that they can comfortably talk about these issues with you, then they will be more likely to discuss something if it happens to them. And I also think, uh, you know, parents or adults around kids, it's important to educate yourself about uh, child abuse um, so that way you're more comfortable to speak yeah. about this topic. So whenever you're talking to your child about it or whenever your child may disclose something, you're, you kind of have those tools in place. So I'm like, okay, this is how I'm going to respond or, or I've educated myself. I read about, you know, certain ways to talk to kids that are disclosing anything. So I think it's important as adults or as a parent or caregiver to really educate yourself and be knowledgeable in the topic. So that way you're more comfortable and the more comfortable you are, I feel like you're projected onto the child and creating an open platform where the child feels listened to and where they can ask questions um, questions will build trust and confidence that they can come to you with issues they have. Creating a safety plan is another empowering element as well because uh, if a child is primed with information on how to keep themselves safe, they may be more apt to take action if something happens to them. So again, I think it's important that we safety plan. We tell them we have in our curriculum, we have these three steps, you know, where we, you know, you say no, um, and you run away and you tell a trusting adult, right? So these are things that you could implement with their child, let them know that, you know, that you're there for them and really give them these tools. You know, if something does, if something were to happen where you feel unsafe or uncomfortable, um, and again, it's the language that we're using, right? So unsafe, uncomfortable, um, give them these three rules, you know, to say no, run away and talk to a trusting adult and then have them name those adults. So that way when something, if something were to happen, it's muscle memory, right? So they kind of go automatically without thinking, they mm-hmm. go back to those three rules that you taught them. Yeah, and I think that's really powerful for kids too, right? Especially in like that learning process, you know, having that little three-step rule. And, and we went over and over and over that with the kids, right? Every time we were there, you know, in just one session, those three rules, you know, continually modeling that with the kids and I remember they always had fun too right because we always did you know say no yell no and like there's nothing especially kindergartners want to do more than just like scream something out in unison you know for the run component we had them kind of shuffle their arms like they were mimicking running away you know and just making that engaging for the kids if a parent out there right now is thinking well like how do I talk about these things with my kids there's a lot of ways 
to do that, right? You don't have to mention like all of like these really horrible intricacies, right? Like you don't really have to go into so many definitions. There's a lot of ways that you can implement these different concepts without really having to get into the kind of um, the ugly side of it, right? And so even just talking about good touch and bad touch, like that's our number one thing with the kindergartners. And, you know, we don't talk about like sexual touches, uh, but we, you know, we talk about like any kind of touch that makes you uncomfortable or gives you that weird feeling in your belly, right? Like something's not right. And so I think parents out there listening to this, you know, um, there's, again, so many ways you can, you can have these conversations. Um, um, and again, it could be really an empowering process for the two of you. And so I'll be linking some, you know, different prevention curriculum down below. If anyone's curious, right, and they're like, I just don't know how to start this conversation or after this, I just kind of want to have more material and information. A lot of things we're going to link below. And so the next tip is if abuse has occurred, report and seek help and never take the law into your own hands. Um, and I can, you know, feel and understand that a lot of people thinking about, you know, my child has been hurt in some way and for a parent that must be so hard, right, to obviously digest that and come, you know, to terms with that. Um, there might be those like really vindictive feelings like I, I want to get this person and something has to be done. But that is always kind of a dangerous situation. I'll talk a little bit more about that. So just never take the law into your own hands. If you're aware that maybe a child is in immediate danger right now, call 911. That is, I think, first and foremost, if that, if that child's in danger, that is the best thing you can do. But you can also report to the local CPS agency near you. You can make that call or even the National Child Abuse hot, Hotline as well. So we're gonna have you know different links and different um, numbers down there in the description that you can contact. But you can also even contact the child's pediatrician. They can help kind of direct you on next steps. You know, they can screen that child for any injuries or signs of abuse. And again, just don't take the situation into your own hands, right? Confronting that abuser may not only be very dangerous for yourself, uh, but especially for that child, right? And so. Just keep that in mind. It's it's not gonna do anything to really bring justice to that situation. You might end up getting arrested, getting in trouble. You may end up you know, um, jeopardizing any kind of an investigation or case that the police can come in and do after that. And so leave it to the police. And lastly, if you report to authorities, your name isn't released to the family or person involved. So let's say this is not your child, right? But you have you know, really, really um, good suspicions that these things are happening. You do have some evidence and things are just starting to line up a little bit. You never have to be worried about reporting like maybe these people are going to seek revenge on you or just be upset with you knowing that you're the one that called this in and you're the one getting us in trouble. That does not happen. You will be, you know, confidentially uh, not reported as that person who made that call. They're not going to know who it was. And so it's a much safer option, right? And it's going to be much more effective than you ever trying to, again, confront that person. Thank you, Lisa. And so the next tip is keep the child away from the suspected abuser until authorities are notified or supervise any future contact with the person if possible. So let's say that maybe they are required or, you know, there is maybe a custody agreement and maybe the abuser is a parent, right? Um, definitely keep it, you know, limited if you are unable to cancel or unable to keep them away from that person, um, but if possible, supervise. We obviously don't want to willingly put the child in another dangerous or unsafe situation if we don't have to. 
even if this wasn't investigated further yet, it's better to kind of err on the side of caution and limit exposure to that situation as to not cause further harm, right? And so we want to make sure that the child feels protected and safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the last tip we're going to share out is if the child has been abused or, you know, disclosed that they have experienced any kind of abuse that maybe is not confirmed yet, either way, reiterate to that child that this is not their fault, what happened to them, and they have done nothing wrong. A huge part of the manipulation by the perpetrator, you know, they may be telling the child that they deserve this, you know, that they're experiencing it because it's their faults that they are bringing this on themselves, right? So, you know, when children are constantly told to listen to adults and follow authority and trust, you know, that adults have their best interest, which a lot of adults in their life do, um, you know, they may really capitalize, right? Like that perpetrator may really capitalize on that um, by manipulating them in that way, you know, telling them that this is something they're allowed to do to them, that they deserve, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, maybe these children are not developmentally capable of understanding that in an abusive situation, they're not at fault. Um, and especially in cases of sexual abuse, we know it's really common for perpetrators of sexual abuse to say, like, this is our little secret. Or, you know, if you ever tell anyone about this, you're going to get in trouble. And so these things, you know, can be really planted in their minds. And so reiterating that this is not true, that it's not their fault, that, you know, these things that are making them feel scary or uncomfortable, you know, these are not to be kept as a secret. Um, it, that's going to be really powerful for kids to hear those things, right? That's really powerful for also their healing process, uh, knowing that they shouldn't bear the responsibility of this or carry that shame for what happened because it wasn't their fault. And I think, you know, I think that's an important consideration for survivors of all ages, just to understand it is not your fault what happened to you. There's no excuse for someone to be abusive in any way towards you. And again, especially for children, that's just a really, really powerful thing to keep in mind. We're going to get into a meditation here in a little bit. I think it's so well needed after today's conversation. But before we get there, you know, do you guys have any maybe last minute thoughts or tips or just considerations for the listeners out there? Like I said before, I think, you know, just learning as much as you can as an adult about child abuse and how to talk to children, um, I think it really help you just kind of feel more comfortable um, talking to kids and talking mm -hmm. to your own kids. Because I feel like the more prepared you are, the better. So if there's any moment that you can look at our resources and really look into what that looks like, um, I think any any sort of education, any sort of just awareness on your part as an adult can really help. Okay, and then I'll start the meditation for today. Um, so find a comfortable position, sitting or laying down. Uh, notice how you are feeling right now. So that could be physically, that could be mentally. So just really take that time to look into your, into your being. Um, take a deep breath in through your nose and release it through your mouth. Take another deep breath and allow your breath to relax you as you inhale fully. Breathe in gently, and as you breathe out, let the air carry the tension out of your body. Continue to breathe slowly and gently as you begin to focus on relaxing your body. Notice where your body is tense. Focus your attention on one of those areas. As you breathe, picture that 
part of your body becoming slightly more relaxed than it was before. With each breath, that part of your body becomes le a little bit more relaxed. Imagine what the relaxation feels like. Is it tingly? Is it soft? Is it gentle? Is it calm? Is it loose? Do you feel free? And let the feeling of relaxation grow. Scan your body for any areas of tension and for each area, let the relaxation soften the muscle as they give up their hold. Take a deep breath in, relaxation, and breathe out tension. Breathe in calm and let the tension go as you exhale. Continue to breathe slowly and gently, deepening your state of relaxation more and more with every breath. Deeper and deeper, more and more relaxed, calm and at peace. Now begin to create a picture in your mind. Imagine a place where you feel completely at ease this might be a favorite place you have or somewhere you have seen, or it might be a completely imaginary place. Picture this place where you feel happy, calm, and safe. Create the details about this place in your mind. Visualize the sights, the sounds, the smells of your place. Imagine how you feel physically. You're comfortable relaxing or doing whatever enjoyable activities you participate in enjoy the way you are feeling in this safe place you feel calm you feel safe here and at peace with yourself remain in your peaceful place while you meditate calmly and whenever you're ready you can just come back thank you so much for that miguel that was absolutely well needed after today's conversation and so we're going to have a variety of resources and information below for our local, national, and international listeners. We have linked our contact information for our agency, Live Violence Free. If anyone wants to reach out to have a conversation, to get more knowledge, to get more supports. We're also going to have different hotline numbers, uh, anonymous chats for listeners around the world, and also be on the lookout for that follow-up episode to this discussion. So we're going to cover you know, a lot of other really important topics, considerations that we just did not include today. So yeah, make sure to follow or subscribe to our podcast. You'll see when all new episodes are released, including that follow-up. And we know that violence thrives in silence. So having this difficult conversation hopefully has really empowered our listeners with this important information. And, you know, just getting the knowledge out there that these things are preventable. And there's a lot of different things that we can do to not only prevent these things from happening, but also, you know, provide that really crucial and important support for any children who have experienced any type of abuse. And so thank you so much for listening in to this episode, and we hope you will join us for our next conversation.